Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. What does the destruction of the temple mean? What does it mean not to be anything? Not to have an identity? Not to be a part of anything? Not to believe in anything? No bumper stickers? No slogans? No rousing speeches? There is no applause, no trust in anything or anyone other than what Luke has written out in consecutive order. Why, I ask you, would Luke begin his gospel by trying to convince his addressees not to trust in Jerusalem? If anything can be understood about the Orthodox war in Europe, We must hear it through the voice of instruction crying out to us from the wilderness of Scripture. This voice tirelessly scolds us for believing in false gods, be they religious, political, ideological, moral, institutional, personal, intellectual, ethical, cultural, pragmatic, progressive, conservative, romantic, nationalistic, legal, libertarian, democratic, or fascist. None of these gods have any bearing on the crucifixion of Jesus other than their gleeful participation in it. Likewise, none can prevent the proclamation of the resurrection other than to distract us from it. Thus, David the shepherd cries aloud, Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 5 to 7. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you're listening to episode 431 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Last week, we talked about this mechanism in Scripture of God making a barren womb life-giving. Anyone hearing us talking about this from a theological perspective will immediately jump to a discussion of the Virgin Mary. And in fact, last week, we touched on the Virgin Mary because she has an important function in the Gospel of Luke, but not necessarily a function that reflects how she's used in Christian theologies. But the point I want to make at the start of today's episode is that this mechanism of making life come from a barren womb 
isn't specific to the Virgin Mary. In fact, in the story that we're discussing, at this point in Luke, we're talking about the womb of Elizabeth. Throughout the Bible, God makes different women pregnant where their husbands failed. And here, after the destruction of the temple, God is making life where the temple was inadequate to give life. And Luke, of course, is in a way in competition in the minds of his addressees with the Jerusalem leadership. Because institutional authority, unfortunately, is always functional in people's minds. So even though the temple has been destroyed, I mean, look, it's 2022. And people are still talking about institutional structures from the ancient world as having authority. That's how the human mind works. We want to believe there's a system that is of our own making that gives something credibility. We don't want to accept the credibility of God's debar, which comes from his lips as standing on its own. And that's the tension here in the pericope. So Luke, at the outset of his gospel, has to make it clear to his addressee that life comes from the mouth of God the Father through his dabarim. It's not dependent on the temple, and he can make any barren womb life-giving because he's the merciful God. Here we have Luke beginning with the barren womb. That's the beginning here. We began with the word to the lover of God who is going to listen so that he is reminded of the things that he believes in. And then the first thing we hear about is the story about a couple, a priestly couple, who are righteous in the eyes of God and are barren. We begin with the barrenness of the righteousness of the temple functionaries. That's the beginning of the story. So, as you were saying, Father, when we talk about the Virgin Mary and about her womb, it is always about God's ability to give life. The problem, both for the Orthodox, the Catholics, and for the Protestants, is that the discussion is about whether Mary is something in and of herself. She isn't anything in and of herself. She is the recipient of God's point that he is the only one who gives life. In barren wombs, in unfertilized wombs, he gives life, God alone. And that is the point that we need to start with here. The difference between God and Caesar is that Caesar can take away life. God can also take away life but he can also give life. And that's what separates God from anything, anyone else. In Hosea, this is the challenge. The land thinks that Baal is giving life, is fertilizing her womb. The people think that it's Baal who fertilizes the land. And God says, I let you think that. But every time you thought that, it was me. Because Baal can't give life. 
You know, Father, we were just talking a little bit ago, you know, about the problems that we see in American society, and we don't have time in a, a single podcast series to talk about the problems in American society. But one of the things is that you see this rot happening in the center of the cities. You see it in Minneapolis, you see it in St. Louis, you see it in Boston, you see it all over the country. Detroit, I mean, wherever you want to go. And it's neglected people, and it's rotting from the center, even though the cities in the United States are some of the richest in the history of humanity. And you have that rot that happens in the middle of the city, in the middle of institution, because human beings can't give life. They can only take away life. Murder numbers are up today. Suicide numbers are up today. We know this. They're at the highest point since 1994. Because wealth, cities, human power cannot give life. We can take away life, but only God gives life. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. What's beautiful about verse 8 and 9 taken together is that it was by chance that he was chosen to enter the temple and burn incense. It was by lot, the roll of the dice. Much ado is made about planning and thinking ahead and following your process. And In a temple setting, an institutional setting, there are rules that you need to follow in order to do things correctly. But this is arbitrary. Always, always, always in Scripture, the Lord or Yahweh Elohim, depending on what the text says. Let's not theologize. But God intervenes in a way that, from the perspective of our systems, institutions, and plans, is arbitrary. It seems like dumb luck or misfortune, but it's something beyond our control. Zacharias didn't wake up on a Tuesday and say, I'm going to go in and burn incense today. And after that, I'm going to meet my buddy Rich at Starbucks. And we're going to chat about next week's episode. That's not what he said. He was appointed by the casting of lots. And oops, here I am. I guess this is where I am this morning. It's a reflection of what was taught to us in the Gospel of Matthew at the beginning of the New Testament canon. Look at the lilies of the field. They neither toil nor reap. Yet Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Solomon is associated with the temple. So just chill. Everything is in the hands of God. You don't know where you're going to be in the next 15 minutes, let alone the next day, let alone the next week. You are in the hands of the terrible God. And this is where Zacharias found himself. What do you know? It's significant that Zacharias submits to 
the role that he has. According to the order that he was born into, this is his job. And he goes in and he burns incense, and he was righteous. This is what we know. He was righteous, submitted, and burned incense when it was his turn. And, you know, when you talk about this arbitrariness, Father, from the point of view of the story, this was clearly not arbitrary. From the point of view of the characters in the story, it was arbitrary. And this is something I want people to really think about as you read the Bible as literature, is understand that there's always this play in points of view. Don't get confused. The characters just saw this as another rolling of the dice, which they did every time. That's the way they do it. Okay, you know, if you're going to start off the baseball game, you throw the bat in the air, and then you see who's going to pitch first. If you're going to play chess, you scramble the black and the white pawn behind your back, and the other person chooses. It's dumb luck. It's a lot. You just choose one. But when God wants one team to win at baseball, he's going to make sure that the person who gets the bat is the one who's going to have enough hands to get to the top of the bat so that they bat first when God wants to intervene. But there's no way that human beings can tell because when you're playing baseball, there is no scripture that's going to interpret that baseball game for you. Here we have a story, and in that story, we have a story of casting lots, and we have its interpretation all within the same story. That's the beautiful thing of reading literature. Now, the other thing that I noticed, I couldn't help but think of Job in this instance because one problem we have with any kind of temple activity is quid pro quo. This happens in today's churches. This is no different. I want this. I will do this. Therefore, God will do that. Anytime you have a therefore God will do, you're beyond your ken. You can't. The problem we have in Hosea, for example, and throughout the prophets, is that people get this quid pro quo relationship with what they call Yahweh, but in fact it's with Baal, because with Yahweh there is no quid pro quo. I do this, therefore God does that. No. That happens with Baal. You don't actually get the thing, but that's how the mythology around Baal works, but it doesn't work with Yahweh. So Job used to sacrifice extra just in case his kids might have sinned, and he was considered righteous for that according to God. I mean, God told Satan that he was the most righteous person ever. Here we have someone who is in need, but he doesn't do anything extra. He does precisely what his job is, and no less and no more. He was righteous already, and he goes in and simply does his job. When we see that Zechariah is considered righteous, we want to say, oh, he must be doing something extra. All we see is that he's submitting to his station. That's literally all we know about him. And the fact that God happens to think he's righteous. So please be careful of quid pro quo thinking, because it is not of the Lord. This is of Baal. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering, and an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. So in his commentary on Luke, 
Father Paul draws a parallel between what's happening here in this section of Luke and the prophecy of Jeremiah. Because in the Old Testament, in the prophetic text, Jeremiah is disassociating the authority of the Dabar, the Dabarim of Elohim. He's disassociating that authority from the temple priesthood. The institution of the temple through its priesthood in the Old Testament was the broker of divine authority. But in Jeremiah, and generally speaking in the prophetic movement, but specifically in Jeremiah, there is a forceful move against the temple priesthood to locate God's authority directly in God's instruction, his dabar, his words, his dabarim, so that the words of God, based on the authority held in the content of the instruction itself, could stand on its own, ultimately in the wilderness. We've talked about that extensively. So here in Luke we see that the temple is defunct. Remember the historical context, it's been destroyed. Luke is deconstructing the authority of the institution of Jerusalem in the mind of his addressees so that he can get them to accept the authority of that instruction which Jeremiah had previously dislocated from the institution of the temple in Jerusalem. He's trying to do the same thing for the Gentile converts, and he's doing it through Zacharias. So everything Zacharias has done as a temple functionary has been inadequate and defunct. And it's only now when the angel of Yahweh intervenes, Yahweh the deity of Jerusalem, when the angel of Yahweh intervenes to bring that word directly, not from the temple or through the priesthood, but from outside, to make the womb of the priest's wife fertile, it's only then that something's going to happen, that something's going to move, that there's going to be life, which means the temple is not the source of life, the institution is not the source of life, and the priesthood is not the arbiter of the source of life. All of this is basic Bible 101, because the priesthood and the temple and the king all are one package part and parcel, and it's all being dismembered, dislocated, deconstructed, disavowed, and dispensed with at the outset of Luke. There isn't anything about the temple that allows this to happen. There isn't even anything necessarily about Zacharias. I mean, what's the reason the Lord decided to do this? It's actually not there. All it says is your prayer was heard. Was it because you are a righteous man, because you performed it, because he did this? No. Nothing is ascribed to Zecharias. Nothing. So little is known about Zecharias. Now, the impulse of the human being is then to like write a story about Zecharias, and we've got the kind of pseudepigrapha, which is old-fashioned fan fiction where people would write the backstory of Zecharias, and people would write these kinds of things. Okay, fine, write them, whatever. They're not scripture. Here, he just heard the prayer. But the point that's being made, Father, I think is so important because, first of all, you do not have a quid pro quo. And second, 
it's not the temple that gives life, but the messenger of the Lord had to enter into the temple to give this word to this guy that they pulled aside to have a word with them. You're going to have a son. And his name is going to be John. And the name John is Yohanan, which is the Lord shows grace. So the way in Hebrew to show that someone uh, favors somebody else is it says they lift up their face. They show hen. This is the grace that they show them because the favor, like the Lord has shown favor to me. They lift up the face, the hen. Hen means the favor that's been shown. The Lord will show favor. And I'm going to have a spoiler here, unfortunately, that this person who is inside Elizabeth's womb at this point then is going to be the one who goes out to the wilderness, John the Baptist, to be the herald for the king of the kingdom of the heavens. Not only is this son of a priestly family not going to stay in the temple, but he goes out into the wilderness to live in camel's hair and eat locusts as far from civilization as he can be in order to announced to all the coming of the king. It's a beautiful, beautiful point that this story of John the Baptist begins in the center of the temple, but then continues in the wilderness, and finally, as we know, is going to end in the palace of the kings of Rome. It's so important here at this point in Luke that we simply accept and bow down to the rule of the Gospel of Luke. That at the center of the city, in late antiquity, in Jerusalem, to use your words, Richard, there's nothing but rot. Just like at the center of modern American cities, we're finding rot and decay. The only hope is to form a tribe around the shepherd in the wilderness But it's not a human shepherd, and it isn't about shepherdism as though there's this idyllic life that we should all model. I hate that word. Let's model this behavior. It's another paganism. Just stop. There's no modeling. There's no building. It's about the dabarim that flow from the mouth of Elohim through his slave, David, in the wilderness which means that we are a tribe, just like any other family on earth. But what's unique about this tribe in the wilderness is that it's controlled by these words that Luke is setting out for us in his gospel. That's the hope. There's nothing else. Just live your life and hear these words. And don't put your faith in anything men build, because everything that human beings construct fades away, and becomes rotten. You want to find hope? Listen to these things and love each other according to these things. Take care of each other. Dwell in the land. Live your life according to these things in the order that I am reciting them to you. Obey my voice. Scripture is so clear We muddle it because we don't like what it's saying. But it's so clear what it's saying. 
We want to make the Theotokos into a champion because we want to be heroes. But Mary's value in Luke is exactly that she's powerless. She's not a champion. Because if she becomes a champion, the way we talk about her, then she is just another Isis. And what academics say is correct, that we simply switched her out with the pagan goddesses. But if we submit to Luke... Mary functions correctly. Elizabeth functions correctly. Not as a hero or a champion, but as a barren womb that was made fertile, not because of the womb, but because of the Dabarim of Elohim, which is the source of life. It is ultimately God who makes life. Nothing comes from us. Nothing comes comes from us. Should I say it a third time in honor of Jeremiah, Dr. Benton? Nothing comes from us. Thanks a lot, Rich. Have a good week. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.